Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins, coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Okay, welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm your slightly under-the-weather host, Will. Kelly, what is going on with Twitter and Elon Musk? Oh, I don't know if you heard from your sickbed, but Elon Musk is bringing free speech back to Twitter. Without consequence, it's great. I'm going to debut some truly insane new opinions. I'm going to become very anti like Delaware or something like that. It's going to be really good for me. Yeah. So you checking in on the folks we normally follow. I mean, this is obviously a huge deal for them. I mean, a lot of their heroes, you know, let's say Gavin McGinnis, founder of the Proud Boys, Milo Yiannopoulos, obviously the big one, the big guy, Donald Trump himself, were banned from Twitter. And this, I will say, I think a month ago or so, you never could have predicted that this really worked out well for them, I guess, because now there's at least a chance that uh, all of their favorite characters will return to the platform. It's amazing. I thought they were all enjoying Truth Social, but uh, I guess they do want to come back and hang out with the libs. Well, this is one funny thing. I mean, so Truth Social, of course, we've talked about our passion for posting truths, which is the (laughs) Truth Social version of tweets on Donald Trump's social network. Yeah, I mean, it really does seem like Truth Social now is going to be dead in the water. Trump doesn't even post there. I think there's a big question about whether he'll return to Twitter if he gets the chance. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's amazing. It's funny because all of these platforms are all of these figures talk about the utopian new platform where they can finally be unbridled and speak their minds. And it's just going to be for conservatives. And they get there and they're all in one place and they're like, well, I don't like this. This isn't any fun. So welcome back to Twitter. We're not enjoying ourselves here either. So just to give you an idea of like how dead in the water True Social is, Donald Trump, the only reason True Social exists, doesn't even know what it's called. Here's a clip. Had to give the American people their voice back by building something called Truth Truth Central. Wow. I will say the one kind of bummer about this whole thing to me is that I finally got off the True Social waiting list. I was at (laughs) 1 million. And then last week I got a thing that said, it's time to truth. You're off the waiting list. And it was very weird because I I basically had to set alerts on my phone so it would allow notifications. Then it was like, okay, you're being entered into this walled garden. Finally, the party has arrived. It was just totally dead. So I was going to come on here and kind of thumb my nose at you, Kelly, for not having a True Social invite, whatever, kind of make myself to be better than, but shows me. Yeah, no, totally. I'm still working on becoming a parlor influencer. So that's really where my energy is focused. So one thing we've been following here on Fever Dreams is the kind of drib drab 
of text message releases, email releases from the January 6th committee. There's always sort of a new embarrassment around the corner, a new revelation about how eager some elected Republicans were for basically for Trump to overthrow the election and institute some sort of Trumpian fascism. Kelly, there have been some new developments on this this week. That's right. So just yesterday, CNN published literally thousands of January 6th related text messages from Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff. This is a cool cache. There are some real bangers in here. But I think my favorite narrative arc, shall we say, from this new trove is from Marjorie Taylor Greene, whose views sort of evolved in the days surrounding January 6th. And I was hoping we could do maybe a dramatic reading of some selected Green texts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, banner disclaimer, not to make light of anything that people were feeling in the moments of January 6th. I understand it was probably very scary being in the Capitol, but some of these texts from MTG at the time were just pretty rich. So here's Marjorie Taylor Greene on January 6th. It's 2.28 p.m. People are storming the Capitol. She texts Mark Meadows, Mark, I was just told there was an active shooter on the first floor of the Capitol. Please tell the president to calm people. This isn't a way to solve anything. Cut to about hour and a half later, 3.52, she says... It is interesting watching the, and we're going to see here, how her mind kind of tell Trump to calm down the Trump supporters, and then here we get kind of a flip. It is wild, because that first text really undercuts all this messaging they've come out with after the fact, saying Trump had nothing to do with the riot. He couldn't control those people, because when she thought there was an active shooter, she's like, Mark, you got to get Trump on the line. Get, get them out. Get all your fans out. She knew in the moment. But again, hour and a half later, we get this. Mark, we don't think think these attackers are our people. We think they are Antifa, dressed like Trump supporters. And so there you've seen the pivot there to this idea that these are Antifa. Certainly something we've seen in the past from other people reacting to the riot. They kind of look at a video of someone wearing a mask or like kind of disguising their identity. And they're like, this has to be Antifa rather than just that these people were all committing a bunch of felonies. Oh, absolutely. It was funny. Even watching footage from outside the Capitol that day, there were Trump fans breaking in and accusing each other of being Antifa. It's this real like self-purging instinct. You've got to just like find the traitor in your midst when in fact these are all very enthusiastic Trump fans who are breaking into the Capitol building together. But in the days after the break-in, Green had some time to sort of tailor her message to figure out exactly how they were going to play this, how they were going to rehabilitate Trump. And she texts Mark Meadows on January 17th. In our private chat with only members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial law. I don't know on those things. I just wanted you to tell him. They stole this election. We all know. They will destroy our country next. Please tell him to declassify as much as possible so we can go after Biden and anyone else. Marshalls obviously is misspelled like the store Marshalls. Spelled like the rapper Eminem. With Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's so many people that every time she messes something up, people are like, she's playing 4D chess. She just wants you to talk about her Mimi mess up. She wants you to talk about the gaffe and give her more attention. That's what happened when she tried to say Gestapo and said Gaspacho. And I think this is a real indication that she's not doing this on purpose, that these are authentic mess ups, which is fine, except for the fact that she's calling for martial law against half of the country. 
Right. And so this text message is interesting. I mean, this comes 11 days after January 6th. And this is sort of like we were seeing people like Mike Lindell, while some Republican officials were kind of really distancing themselves from Trump. The sort of remaining hardcore was like, oh, man, like we cannot let Biden take office here. And then one thing I just want to highlight here is at the end, she says, please tell him to declassify as much as possible. And you might think, what's that about? What she mean declassify? Well, I don't think I'm getting over my skis here to point out that declassify is a huge QAnon thing. Oh, yeah. And they say declass now. And the idea is that before, obviously, when Trump was in office, they believed that there was all this evidence of satanic pedophile cabal and all its misdeeds, but it was classified. And so this is, they would say, like, declass, like, there was this QAnon guy who took over a bridge with an armored truck near the Hoover <laughs> Dam, and he said, declassify the real report into Hillary Clinton and all this stuff. So declassify, that's such a specific term. And, a, and given, obviously, we know Marjorie Taylor Greene has been a QAnon believer, I feel like I'm not reading too much into it here to think that she's kind of kicking these to Mark Meadows. And the other thing I want to flag, right, is this is at least the second person who's hitting Mark Meadows during this time period with some QAnon. Because also we had Ginny Thomas saying like, hey, That's right. I hear Biden's going to be sent to Guantanamo Bay. Is this true? And it's it's also really funny how all of these people are kind of like not saying I believe this. They're saying like a lot of people are saying it's martial law time or like a lot of people are saying it's Guantanamo Bay time. But <laughs> just kind of seeing what you think. No, it's wild to me because you're totally right. Like it, there's all this like, hey, I'm just passing along the this thing I saw on Facebook, but with slightly elevated language. What is so funny to me, though, is this idea that all the truths are going to be declassified. There's going to be radical new transparency. What that actually looks like in effect is what we're reading right now. We are reading Marjorie Taylor Greene's text <laughs> messages to Mark Meadows. And all these people think that the declassification is going to be just this treasure trove of documents from the other side, when in fact, they're making those documents. They are coming out with the evidence that's about to be declassified, so to speak. So it's really funny. I think there's a lot of projection there on the part of the Marjorie Taylor Greens to say that there's this plot on the left when, in fact, it's really something they are actively involved in on the right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Kelly. I think here at Fever Dreams, we can join the call to declass now. <laughs> when it comes to these documents. The other thing that's interesting is how quickly she changes from recognizing the obvious, right? Which is all these people with MAGA hats and Trump flags that are breaking in. And it's like, she says, oh, these are Trump supporters. You know, they're rallying. They want to overthrow the election. And then suddenly she says, these are Antifa. And I think in reality, right, it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you're probably fine. You're a hero to these people. But she sort of has to dress it up as this sort of phantom Antifa menace. Absolutely. It's all conspiracy theories with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her backstory before taking office is this CrossFit personality who shouted into her front facing camera about QAnon. And she liked all the posts about hanging political rivals for treason. And I think those conspiracy theories are just a fallback for her. All through 2020, we saw these Antifa hoaxes. Antifa's coming to your town in a big, mean bus, and they're going to round you up and make you praise Joe Biden in the town square. And when she panics, she just falls back in that. She's like, Antifa are coming into the Capitol, and this isn't the fault of anybody wearing a Trump hat. It's really wild to just kind of get the real-time TikTok of her thoughts there. 
I think one other thing that's interesting about these messages is this allusion to the members only chat. Yes. Now, I, I, I'm presuming that's lawmakers only, not a sort of like members only of some cool like club, perhaps the Madison Cawthorn Orgy Club. <laughs> the allusion there to like, oh, people are really talking about doing a coup in the chat. <laughs> you might want to check our Discord. So the I saw some tweets from reporters saying that they have seen this chat described to them, that it looks, quote, it's pretty embarrassing. Well, I think it might be perhaps more revelatory than that, but hopefully those will come out as well. I'm not sure if there's various privilege involved, if it's a bunch of members of a political party kind of plotting together, maybe the committee can't get that. But you just have to imagine what kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of rolling around with, rolling with Louis Gomer, Paul Gosar, who knows what these folks could be shitposting in the members-only chat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In conclusion, D-Class Now, I'm going to start a Will Anon movement, and we're going to really push that. (laughs) So, Will, the far right likes to make a lot of hay about supposed human trafficking, investigations that are just about to come to light. And to their credit, there was a trafficking investigation that went down quite recently. Can you tell me who that was against? Sure. This is interesting. This is a case about two kickboxers turned sort of like right-wing manosphere influencers. They're brothers. Their names are Andrew Tate, a.k.a. Cobra Tate, and Tristan Tate, a.k.a talisman tape. I don't know if they chose those nicknames for themselves or whatever, but basically these guys live in Romania. They operate a sort of cam studio where beautiful women basically like dupe men and they say, oh, I'm in such trouble. Can you send me 20,000 pounds? This is according to, I believe, a Daily Mirror investigation of them. But these guys are very open about it. Andrew Tate's been called the king of toxic masculinity. So people may have heard of this guy before because Andrew Tate in particular, because he posted, he had this tweet that was something like, I don't want Star Wars because it makes me poor. You're worrying about Star Destroyers. I'm worrying about bank account destroyers. That kind of like hustle, <laughs> sort of hustle tweet. The grind set. <laughs> But earlier this month, the Tate brothers got a bit of hot water. So they live in Romania. They are British-American guys themselves. But they were raided by the Romanian police as part of an investigation into human trafficking and rape. It's a little hard to puzzle out the details, but it seems as though this American woman reported that she was being held there against her will. The U.S. Embassy got involved in this, I mean, really kind of like a SWAT team type raid on their sports car mansion situation took place. I do want to stress the Tate brothers have not been charged or arrested here. But there, you might say, okay. Okay, all right, great Romanian true crime files, right? What's the connection here to Fever Dreams? Well, Andrew Tate has these connections to a lot of kind of right-wing guys here in America. So, for example, or connected to InfoWars. So he's tight with Paul Joseph Watson, who's an InfoWars guy, who's Prison Planet on Twitter. In CPAC 2019, he's photographed at the Trump Hotel with people like Nigel Farage, big Brexit guy, Mike Cernovich, who, of course, is a kind of big Pizzagate guy. He got dinner with Jack Posobiec. And so it just struck me that in particular, in, in the case of Posobiec and Cernovich, who are both big Pizzagate guys, that they're like, oh, palling around with this guy. Cut to three years later, the Romanian police are taking down doors at his house as part of this trafficking investigation. Yeah, I would say that the uh, trafficking call is coming from inside the house <laughs> on the right wing, but like literally that is the actual geographic graphical allegation there. It's wild to me because this guy, you did some really great reporting on this raid. And this is a guy who is pretty damn open about why, like what he's doing in that house. He said something to the effect of part of the reason he wanted to move to Romania was that he thought Romanian police would be less thorough in sexual assault investigations. Like these are people who 
they're like half self-help guru, half MAGA personality. And what they sell are these like informational guides for men about how you can get with any woman and have unlimited money or whatever. And it's really kind of quite gross. It really does use a lot of the language that like if you were a trafficker, that language is it belongs very much in that milieu. So yeah, okay, this guy denies it. He's uh, now going on the record calling the woman who accused him a bitch. That's always going to play great in court. But I do think it's funny that with all these right wing figures who go on all day about trafficking, that they keep finding themselves in proximity to trafficking investigations. Sure. So who else are you thinking of? Oh, okay. So you know uh, Conceptual James, James Lindsay on Twitter? So for folks who are blissfully unaware, he's one of these like intellectual dark web figures who claims to know about philosophy or whatever, but really just spends his days tweeting about groomers. Well, what do you know? Just this weekend, it comes out that he went on a road trip and did a photo shoot in a conference with Nikki Klein. Nikki Klein is, um, my personal opinion, least favorite actress in the Battlestar Galactica reboot. And more critically... I believe she played Callie. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Absolutely um, awful character. It was like, let the mechanic dude do his thing. (laughs) Just like this bumbling, like, Scooby-Doo character and what was overall a pretty good sci-fi reboot. She won't let her man hook up with a Cylon. That's right. Okay, so I think this segment is coming down anti-Star Wars, pro-Battlestar Galactica. I just want the... Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm ready to remount my takes here on Battlestar, yeah. But Nikki Klein in particular is a high-level member of the Nexium cult. She was a loud defender of members of that group, the founder of which was infamously convicted of sex trafficking. So... And oh, Nikki Klein is also being sued by an alleged Nexium victim. So again, this isn't to say that she personally did sex trafficking or that James Lindsay personally did sex trafficking. But I have to just note that not only have I never been linked to anybody who's faced one of these investigations, nobody I know personally has been linked to somebody facing a sex trafficking allegation. And it's just interesting that this keeps happening to the people who make the loudest noise about the supposed trafficking panic. It is a funny thing. I mean, certainly in the case of of the Tate brothers, I mean, when you have a guy saying, yeah, I moved to this country because uh, the police are more skeptical there of sexual assault allegations. I mean, and then you have a situation where like Mike Cernovich, for example, traveled to Europe and met with this guy in Europe and they had a great old time. I mean, it's very odd, right? I mean, so I think obviously this investigation is going to progress. We'll see where it goes. It was definitely odd seeing the Romanian press was, you know, as you might imagine, these guys are like catnip for Romanian news. And so they were just going crazy over this. And it's like, wait, is isn't that the guy from the the rude Star Wars tweet? And doesn't that guy hang out with some InfoWars folks? So really quite a confluence of events there. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you learn about these characters, minor characters in season one, not unlike Callie and Battlestar Galactica, and then they become key players later on. You've got to remember. So we're keeping our eye on this one. This week on Fever Dreams, we've got Anthony Fisher. He's a senior opinion editor at The Daily Beast. He has a passion for following some of the same trends and personalities that we do. And he's especially interested in a stand-up comedian turned conservative pundit, Dave Rubin. So I think he'll have a lot to say on that topic. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Anthony Fisher. He's a senior opinion editor at The Daily Beast, and I think it's fair to say an expert on the the intellectual dark web. Now, what is the intellectual dark web? We're about to find out. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Will. So, mentioned there, the intellectual dark web. What is that, and how did you develop your interest in it? Oh, boy, it's brutal to try to break this down into (laughs) bite-sized chunks. I suppose, Jesus, it kind of came to be among a bunch of internet personalities, some of whom had podcasts or YouTube shows. Um, They generally were self-identified as disaffected liberals who were against what's now known as wokeness, as early as 2016 or 2017 it might have been, in opposition to hyper-political correctness or things like that. And it was, the phrase itself was made kind of internationally recognizable by a New York Times feature opinion article by Barry Weiss in 2018 that had big photographic spread of some of the intellectual dark web's brightest lights posing, glowering among dimly lit shrubbery, I suppose you could say. (laughs) I remember that. It looked like they got lost on a hike. It was unsettling. Yeah. Some seemed happier about it than others. Eric Weinstein, for some reason, had an umbrella in it. Very grassy knoll kind of thing. So among the biggest stars, obviously, are Joe Rogan, probably the biggest star, biggest podcaster in the world. Jordan Peterson, hugely popular lecturer and at the time was a University of Toronto professor and therapist. And he kind of was the big star of the moment because he had spoken out in vocal opposition against a law in Canada, which is still kind of murky in in how it's enforced, but that he claimed would literally throw people in jail if they misgendered people or used the incorrect pronouns. That's a huge exaggeration, but it touched a nerve and it created a huge movement around this guy to the point that he's had two huge best-selling books, a world tour. And then there were people that were kind of either had their own Similar controversies like Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, who were most famous for getting chased out of Evergreen State University by a quote-unquote woke mob. And for a brief period, I was actually pretty sympathetic to their plight, but we'll get more into that later. And then there were other people like Christina Hoff Summers, who to me is kind of like the most straight arrow of the bunch because she's always kind of been what she's been, which is... uh, The Gamergate guys called her based mom. Exactly. She hasn't really changed much based on the whims of their audience. You had Eric Weinstein, who's one of Peter Thiel's right-hand men and Brett Weinstein's brother. You had Ben Shapiro, who was the only one who really fully admitted to being a conservative the whole time. And I'm not even sure why he was there, except that I guess all these people were on his show as well. And I guess his inclusion in the club was these quote unquote liberals saying, look, we've got a legitimate conservative among us. Look how open minded we are, even though all of them are way more comfortable with conservative audiences than liberal audiences. I'm already exhausted breaking down what the main uh, machinery of the intellectual dark web, but I hope I did a decent job. So, Anthony, this is so funny because you mentioned this like veneer of liberalism around them. They're, oh, I'm a liberal, but I just think the rest of the left takes it too far. Why is it so important for them to 
have this, I mean, it's a fraud, right? I mean, they're clearly on the right. Well, again, there are some things about this that I'm sympathetic to, and it's part of why I got interested in this group. I've run in quote unquote heterodox circles myself. I've got difficult politics to pin down. I mean, in the age of Trump and the age of COVID vaccine denial, I really do not associate it with the right in any shape or form, but that doesn't mean overnight I became a socialist. These people claim to have been lifelong Democrats. Some of them say that they were Bernie Sanders supporters and they've not had a nice thing to say about a single Democratic politician or liberal commentator or liberal idea in the last six years. That's where I would go. Perhaps you aren't against gay marriage now. Perhaps you aren't comfortable with Trump, even though many of them have fully come around to being full on MAGA, but we'll get into that too. I think they're more defined by what they're against than what they're for. So I don't even think it's important to say whether or not each individual member is of the right, but you can certainly say, much as there was a lot of the National Review conservatives were anti-Trump and then they became anti-anti-Trump, I think you could say that a lot of these people are just anti-left. They All they see on the left is uh, things that are threatening Western civilization, which is why they latch on to people like Tulsi Gabbard, somebody who's nominally a Democrat, has had some kind of democratic socialist ideas, but for the most part seems to be playing towards the MAGA right audience. And I think she's just kind of like the political avatar of this movement in general. So Anthony, the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast this week, the story you're talking about by Barry Weiss about the intellectual dark web, I mean, this was a few years ago, but I do feel like this kind of strand of thinking, this really focus on like the uh, ostensible like excesses of the left, and in particular in academia, has really helped fuel so many of the, the things that are really, you know, just enormous stories on the right right now, from the critical race theory backlash to attempts to take various books out of schools. Do you think in some ways, looking back to when you first became interested in the heterodox types of the intellectual dark web, that they really gained a lot of influence? Totally. I mean, if you look right now, you go on forever for this, and maybe it deserves its own show. But if you look right now, like one of the thought leaders of the I don't even know how to put it. The people that are pushing the okay groomer slanders that any educators who speak frankly to children about anything related to LGBTQ issues is inherently grooming them. The two people most responsible for that are Chris Rufo, who's a, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, and James Lindsay, who was a math professor, I think, but has become hugely famous among heterodox circles and now far right circles. First, he was known for being for taking part in what was called the Sokol Squared hoax, where they he and a couple of other intellectuals or academics, pardon me, put a bunch of fake, like super woke, ridiculous, obvious parody type, I don't even know what you call them, essays or, or things into academic journals. The, the point was to expose the banality and the frivolity of grievance studies in um, academia. So this guy, James Lindsay, he, along with Chris Rufo, have been at the forefront of pushing both the critical race theory panic and the quote-unquote groomer panic. And while neither one of these guys was really on the scene in 2018 when Barry's opinion piece first came out, much in the same way the intellectual dark web came together through Twitter group chats and appearing on each other's podcasts and appearing in public with each other. Rufo and James Lindsay were absolutely promoted by most of the people in the intellectual dark web. They were both guests on Dave Rubin's show. They were both guests on Joe Rogan's show. I don't know about Ben Shapiro's show. Wouldn't shock me. I know Lindsay was at least. And so there was a time, and I've tweeted this before, there was a time when I would just kind of laugh at how over the top clownish people like Lindsay could be. But 
the fact is, Lindsay and Rufo have kind of created this groundswell that is absolutely affecting policy. Ron DeSantis's press secretary, who's a prolific tweeter herself, she picked up all of this language from Rufo and Lindsay. So, I mean, you, there is a direct line from this early disaffected liberal, these campus lefties, blah, 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 to the legislation that we're seeing right now. It's so interesting to me that you point out that like a James Lindsay is like clownish when you look at his tweets, right? And it, what strikes me is that these people are very, very open about what they're trying to do. Rufo will announce his intention. He says, you know, we're going to falsely associate critical race theory with any kind of uncomfortable race-related discussion. And he's completely frank about doing that. And then he goes and does it. And people like Ron DeSantis's press secretary take it in earnest and make it policy. Why isn't that transparent dishonesty holding them back? I mean, we're in a corrosively toxic political environment. Much as these people came together based in opposition to an idea or to a group of people, that's that's what's happening now. They're defining themselves by the things that they're against. And even though Rufo has openly said he's going to conflate things that really don't have anything to do with critical race theory or quote-unquote grooming, that he's going to conflate them all together so that people lay people, as it were, the casual Twitter observer, just kind of see these things and they associate them all together. And it's amazing how effective their messaging is. People that I know that are barely online have completely taken up these causes. They've completely, they'll cite chapter and verse of the arguments against critical race theory and declare Disney to be like an evil groomer organization and that it always was. And they don't even, they're just not aware that much the way QAnon had a genesis and the Seth Rich hoax had a genesis, somebody spread these lies. They don't realize that there really were like a, just a couple of people online who spread these things and they implanted themselves in people's brains and under a veneer of intellectualism that makes people feel like they've discovered a secret, that they're in some ways woke. <laughs> they're aware of something that the general pu uh, public is oblivious to or uh, willfully blind. So, Anthony, one of the leading intellectual dark web figures is Dave Rubin, someone who I, I know you've kept up with his activities. Who is this guy and sort of what role does he play in the intellectual dark web? And is his stand-up comedy any good? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I think Peanut Gallery has spoken. I first wrote about Dave Rubin, actually, when I was freelancing for The Daily Beast in 2018. It was a pretty well-researched feature, and it came out only a week after Barry's piece in the New York Times. We actually were working on them concurrently without each other's knowledge. And Ruben came to me because um, I had once been in the professional libertarian world and people in that world were really pushing this guy as, oh, you got to hear this guy. Like he's, he's a lefty. He's a Bernie supporting lefty who came from the Young Turks. But he's so honest and he's so open and he's so willing to talk to anybody and do it in a calm way. And I was like, all right, I'll check this out. I'm a free speech guy. Let's, let's see what this guy's got going on. And it, without scratching much of the surface, I found that the only lefties he spoke to were intellectual dark web types. That is to say, people who claim to have been lifelong Democrats, but can't articulate a single Democratic idea that they still support, who were only there to, to complain about the woke and the college kids and PC and blah, 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 blah. But in interviews with people like Milo or Stefan Molyneux or Lauren Southern or Tommy Robinson, like people who are either out and out racists, alt-right, alt-right adjacent, or just disgusting xenophobes, he would have big, smiling, long, yuck-yuck conversations with. And I think that was what sold him to the libertarian and conservative right or center-right, That the way that Rachel Maddow would never let these people like talk. He is willing to talk to them, but it just never goes the other way. He would never have, say, a pro-Palestinian activist or a Black Lives Matter activist on and 
sit for a two hour long interview where he agrees with everything they say and never pushes back on anything they say. So I, I saw that right off the bat for kind of being a fraud. He didn't really like my piece, as you might imagine. It kind of just like began what's continues to this day where I just, I'm an editor now. I don't write as much as I used to, but it's definitely one of my journalistic interests to keep an eye on this movement, even though one of the original members of the intellectual dark web, Sam Harris, has renounced the movement in part because of how far off the bend Dave Rubin has gone. He went from supposedly being this liberal to this libertarian to this kind of conservative, curious type to a full-blown MAGA uh, activist at this point. And Sam Harris renounced his membership in the intellectual dark web basically because of Dave Rubin's pushing of the big lie and anti-vax stuff. So in some ways, it shows that like the rat that I smelled in 2018, I was right, that he was always posing as this open-minded, left-leaning person who was just curious and just willing to have honest conversations with everybody, when really... His game from the start, after he left the Young Turks, was to kind of soft sell the right while like kind of hiding the ball, hiding his own political leanings towards the right. Perhaps some of it is sincere. Like, I'm not one of these people that like says, oh, everything's got a profit motive. He's clearly a grifter. But the idea from the start that he was just a curious lefty, I called bullshit on. And I think time has validated that belief. And so just to bring it on home, he's got a new book out, came out last week called Don't Burn This Country. And I just read it and I'm going to be reviewing it soon. Outstanding. So this is, I think, his second book or second uh, with a similar title. The first is Don't Burn This Book, which I love. I love that title, just the implied persecution. And it really, it strikes me that so many of these intellectual dark web types are dying to be canceled or whatever they present canceled to be. Why is that such a good vehicle for clout in the intellectual dark web? Well, it's funny to say that because just like a lot of things, it's not a black and white issue. There's a yang to the yin. And I'm one of these people that does think that there is some form of kind of ideological intolerance that you could call cancel culture. I think that the, sometimes the bar is just too low and people are just too unforgiving of people either having retrograde ideas or saying the wrong things or saying the wrong things or having bad ideas in the past. I do think that there's a germ of truth to that and it's concerning. But these people, it's the reason to be. They must be talking about this constantly. And in Dave's case, I said in 2018, I wrote that piece that was basically calling bullshit on the idea that he's a liberal. In 2020, I reviewed his first book, Don't Burn This Book, that basically called bullshit on the idea that he's an intellectual, which we can get into that. And then late last year in 2021, also at For Business Insider, I covered basically what I called Dave Rubin's cancel culture stolen valor moment or his Jussie Smollett moment, because he went very, very loud and public saying that he gave an interview to a gay magazine and it was canceled because of the mob and he provided no evidence whatsoever. So I I asked, I kept, I, and, and I kept at it. He immediately tagged Barry Weiss and Ben Shapiro and all these people saying, are you going to take up this case? I was canceled. I was canceled. And eventually he got post-millennial, which is like a far right conspiracy theory, Canadian website. <laughs> yeah. Post-millennial is like a pretty down market operation. I just want to say that. I think they're run out of Canada. They're associated with Andy Nuo. I mean, like this is not one of like the higher end right wing media outlets. Right. Yeah. Outkick, which is Clay Travis's right-wing sports website. And I think there was another one. I don't want to say the wrong name, but another right-wing outlet republished this interview. And if you read this interview, it is something like four or 5,000 words long. The interviewer is clearly a Dave Rubin superfan. He doesn't ask a single controversial question. And Dave Rubin doesn't say anything that he hasn't said 5 billion times before. So I asked, found out who the writer was, and I found out that this writer only particularly wrote for one publication regularly, and it was a gay website. I went to that website. 
And I went to every one of the top 10 leading LGBTQ websites in the English language to see if, in fact, this writer was writing this piece for them. I asked the writer, I asked Dave, I asked all of these publications, like, was this interview commissioned or was this just something the guy did and then submitted and then the publication decided not to run? I'm almost certain that's what it was, <laughs> that it was just a boring interview that was really, really long that the publication decided not to run. But they created, Dave created this idea that he was speaking such unbelievable truths that the woke mob canceled this interview. There was no woke mob. Nobody saw this thing. And when the publication, when the interview actually went live on these right-wing sites, there was no outrage. Nobody cares. Who cares? But it was one of the rare times where Dave would actually responded to me on Twitter and said, you're a weasel. Postmillennial does real journalism. The reason we didn't tell you or anyone which publication canceled this is out of respect for them. And it's like, wait, what? So the idea is you were canceled, but you're protecting the canceller? So who's the canceller? Oh, it's the woke mob that didn't exist. The woke mob that didn't see this interview. So he literally flailed and created a cancel culture story based on nothing. And I wrote about it. So to answer your question, why is this so important that they be canceled? It's because they, it's how they define themselves, that they're so brave that people are trying to shout them down. Speaking of Dave Rubin being canceled, I mean, he recently had this incident where Dave Rubin, who's gay, he and his husband had a surrogate to have a child. And this produced like the craziest reaction from his ostensible friends on the right. Tell me about that. Yeah. So it's not to say that every one of his friends on the right went after him. There were people that were high-fiving him, Megyn Kelly and Megan McCain. You know, there were a lot of people who had identified as conservatives who were okay with gays having children through surrogacy. But the American conservative published a piece that said something like, when the headline was something like no allies who steal babies. <laughs> and Dave's own mentions were people, you know, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people, some of them conservative blue checks saying like, I respect you, Dave, but this is wrong. You know, the, a child needs a mother and a father. And even Glenn Beck and Dave's YouTube show is, there's a version of it that's simulcast on The Blaze, which is the network that popularized by Glenn Beck. In an interview with, with Beck, Ruben said, I understand why people on the right are scared. I understand why they're scared by things like gay marriage and gay adoption and gay surrogacy because the left is that bad. You know, I understand. And Glenn Beck was basically saying, like, even though I disagree with everything about your lifestyle, I love you. You're my friend. You know, how do we work through this? It was a pretty grim thing. It was one of those kinds of things where even though I don't think Dave's a particularly nice guy, even though he's that was kind of how he sold himself originally, he's kind of a mean guy bully who says really creepy misogynistic things against women who he doesn't agree with. And anyway, I did feel bad for him in this moment because he was so clear that to him, finally, that the conservative movement that he's been running in interference for for years and which he has repeatedly claimed doesn't care about gay issues anymore. They're over that. Gay marriage was legalized by GOTUS in 2015. It's last year's civil rights battle. I think at least in that moment, he saw how untrue that was. And his response was not to go deal with it. Leave my audience if you can't deal with this, if you can't respect my family, if you don't respect me as a person. In fact, his response was to grovel and basically apologize for being who he is and who his family is. So, you know, again, rare moment of sympathy for him. Yeah, it strikes me that that's not the only recent case where this has happened. I'm thinking of Andrew Sullivan, who's been pushing right-wing talking points adjacent to trans panic, but who's also a gay man and who recently came out in opposition to some of his allies saying, hey, what are you saying about teaching that gay people people exist in schools. That's fine. That's normal. I'm gay. And I was wondering, is there, if you're aligning yourself with people who fundamentally hate who you are, what's the benefit to that? Do these people really think that they're buddies? Is it just a tactical alliance? Why even bother? 
Well, I mean, again, I, I don't want to read anyone's minds, but I can say that this is not new for Dave. Like Dave, it's another very sad thing. There are several clips online where Dave is interviewing Ben Shapiro, or at least in conversation with Ben Shapiro. And he asks him point blank, would you come to my anniversary party? And Ben Shapiro has repeatedly said, no, <laughs> I am a conservative religious Jew. I think gay marriage is wrong. I will not celebrate your marriage in any way, but I'll have dinner with you and your husband. We can have a barbecue or whatever. Just don't call it a wedding thing. Uh, so he's very, very specific that it's ideological, that it, this is his belief system. And Dave has repeatedly said, if I just stay friends with Ben long enough, and I'm just a good person, eventually I'll move him. I'll make him come around. So I think it really is. Again, I can't get into his mind. He's gotten very rich by playing to this particular crowd. And I think he actually does believe that it reminds me a lot of sometimes immigrants will fight a big immigration battle and, and fight for their rights. And then once they're like fully Americanized, they want to pull the ladder up behind them. That kind of reminds me of Dave and the gay rights movement. I don't know that Dave, at least Andrew Sullivan, when he was like a, a full on Tory, was writing books in the 1990s, making the argument for gay marriage. So at least he's been in these fights. Dave was kind of a middling stand-up where there's very little footage that exists of that career, if there even was one. He had a real indistinguished, undistinguished two-year career at the Young Turks where he didn't really get all that political. Then he's had this evolution into being a fire-breathing political commentator who also doesn't debate or discuss anything with anyone who disagrees with him. Uh, and I think that because he was welcomed as, I'm going to be frank about this, I don't use this phrase lightly because I think it's kind of mean. He's a token gay. There are people who are hostile to gay marriage or hostile to trans rights who use their association with Dave to say, we're not bigots. Look, Dave's with us. All right. Anthony Fisher, senior opinion editor at the Daily Beast. Thank you so much for coming on Fever Dreams. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks. Okay, now we come to Fresh Hell, the segment where we take you to the bowels of hell and tell you all the, the worst things you absolutely <laughs> do not want to know, but you're going to find out about them anyway. Normally, I come up with Fresh Hell, but now Kelly has journeyed down herself to find out a new little bit of Satan's Wonderland. <laughs> all right, Kelly, what's going on in Fresh Hell this week? I love that intro. It sounds like a monster truck thing, like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I was thinking maybe like a carnival attraction. Absolutely. What is a carnival attraction if not Twitter, especially this week when, as we mentioned before, Elon Musk is trying to take it over. He has a bid to buy it. Twitter has accepted it. And in part of their endless quest to find secret meaning in every news event, QAnon fans are using Gematria to decipher the secret meaning of Elon Musk's Twitter purchase. They've been doing things like adding up the letters in Elon's name, which I guess comes out to 44, and claim that it's some cosmic symmetry because he bought Twitter for $44 billion, which is obscene. What is that supposed to mean? Most of them aren't quite sure other than that it's a big coincidence and it signals that a great plan is in motion. Well, this is a funny thing with the Gematria people. So, right. So people might remember Gematria is also being involved in the QAnon JFK Jr. thing in Dallas. But you can kind of create whatever you want with it because you sort of say Kelly Weil, Fever Dreams host, right? And then you get the numbers from that. You just can kind of like jumble up these phrases to get whatever you want. And then even when you do get what you want, as in the case of this Elon Musk thing, they go, <laughs> well, huh? Okay. <laughs> 
makes you think. I love it. Yeah, no, it's it's complete nonsense, but it's really creative nonsense. It's it's like building with Legos. It's like, well, you know, it could, you could subtract some here, you can add some here, you can slap a date on the end, and it's anything you like, which I have to appreciate in some respect. And there actually is an emerging trend now, even over the past day, of Gematria fans who are starting to find some meaning in this uh, in this coincidence. So. There are the ones who are just saying, hey, it's weird that it's uh, the number 44 comes up here a lot. But others are adding up. They're saying that April 25th, the date that Elon Musk announced this purchase, is the 115th day of the year, which correlates to the 115th U.S. Congress. And I really love this theory because the, the 115th U.S. Congress ended in 2019. This was like Paul Ryan era. We're on the 117th right now. So this is a case where if I were a math teacher, I'd say, go back, add it up again. This isn't quite clicking. And others are pointing to Trump's truth social post as more evidence that there has been this overarching plot to bring Trump back onto Twitter. As truth social fans know, Trump's one and only Truth Social post says, your favorite president will see you soon. That was in February, by the way. That's how inactive he is. They think that that message is code and that Trump knew that Elon Musk was going to buy Twitter and reinstate him. And all of this has been foretold in Gematria. That's why I made this whole extra website. (laughs) That's why I spent, you know, like billions and we have an acquisition company that's trying to buy Truth Social and we keep talking about it at rallies. That's why it was just part of the plan, part of the messaging. So one thing to note about Gematria, if our listeners are planning to dabble in the arcane arts. So there are these Gematria calculators. Like you might think like, are these people just like writing this stuff out and like writing it? No, they're not. There are these calculators where you type in any phrase you want and it'll just tell you what number it is. But here's what's also interesting about it. It's not just that. They also suggest one uh, phrases that also have the same number of numbers. So it, it sort of helps you spin up your conspiracy theories. So it'll say like, watch the water is a QAnon phrase and also was just used in the snake venom documentary. And so like you might type something in that it'll say suggestions, watch the water. And then you go like, bing, bing, bing. Bing, bing, bing. You're uh, like Sherlock Holmes in his mind palace. And so you can kind of see the whole world. I love it. It's like 90s animations of what hacking would be in a movie or something. It's great. It's like the first national treasure when Nick Cage types the password into the thingo and it says all the alternative passwords it could be. That's what people actually think is like writing the laws of the universe and certainly interesting. And I think this is actually inspiring a bit of hope among QAnon fans right now because they are so desperate for Elon Musk to let Trump tweet again, even though Trump himself might not be that interested in coming back to Twitter. Yes, I've seen that. He claims he won't return. He's truth social all the way. Yeah, we can tell from his abundance of truths on that site. You know, I do think it is funny. I mean, just to wrap up this Gematria thing, it is just endlessly funny to me how, like, like, you really have to be bought in on Gematria for it to mean anything to you. Because if you show this to a a regular person who's not kind of Gematria-pilled, they would just say, well, yeah. (laughs) You certainly added those letters up to make numbers. seems like a coincidence to me. But I'll tell you what, big definition of a conspiracy theory includes the idea that nothing is a coincidence. And I think when you apply that here to Gematria, I think that explains a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a real law of the universe kind of thing for those who believe. And one thing that I did want to close on here is so 
Trump says that he's not going to tweet again. He's, for the first time, in a situation where he might actually have money on the line for not tweeting because Truth Social has an acquisition company that's trying to buy it. And the stock of that company dropped 44% yesterday after Elon Musk's Twitter announcement, which means Trump's company is like going down the tubes if Elon's buyout actually happens. So if Trump can present a real alternative to Twitter and say, I am truth social all the way, I'm going to be posting there eight hours a day, every day, maybe that would lure some of his fans on there. But you can tell he wants to tweet. He's an addict. He's just like us. So it's really the ultimate test. With billions of dollars in the line, can Trump bring himself not to tweet? Well, Kelly, I have to tell you, I might be getting gematria pilled here because I just entered Fever Dreams podcast into a gematria calculator. And it gives us phrases such as the devil in disguise, human genome project, and (laughs) area 51 in the first dimension. So obviously, that's one just for kind of sit with the audience, sit with you, Kelly, and mull over what that could all mean. Yeah, that's great. I'm ready for some weird t-shirts about us and uh, our Area 51 connections. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.